This is everything you want to know about non-clinical careers for physicians. For Third Evolution, I'm your host, Robert Pretty. It seemed as though the boardroom door had been kicked open and a stern-faced CEO walked deliberately to the head of the conference table. He dropped his stack of files. As they hit the tabletop, he growled, Any doctor can have your job any day. Never forget that. What had just a few moments ago seemed like our typical Monday morning administrative council meeting suddenly turned everything but usual or normal. He proceeded in a very quiet yet efficient manner. A few reports were taken care of, some numbers shared, a bit of information about what was going on that week, and we quickly adjourned back to the safety of our individual offices. What was going on? None of us really knew what had prompted that change in demeanor of the boss that morning, but we had a pretty good idea that our CEO's new policy on executive job security was probably the result of some chance encounter he'd had with a medical staff member while making his morning rounds. Evidently, it wasn't a friendly encounter. But frankly, this was the mid-1980s, and what he said wasn't really a statement that needed to be made. We all knew it. We just didn't really like being reminded of it, and certainly not in that manner. But that was life then. Physicians really did rule health care. Most hospitals were nonprofit enterprises, and insurance companies were struggling with usual and customary payments to physicians. Prospective payment was in effect for hospitals, but not for the physicians. So doctors still play golf on Wednesday or Thursday afternoon, <laughs> some, both, and luxury cars filled the doctor's parking lot. We actually had black tie dinners and lunch at the country club. That was normal back then. Wow, what's happened? If you're a younger physician, you're probably scratching your head and saying, for real? But if you're a bit older, you probably remember both the good and the bad of those days. But here we are, about 30 years later, and today, insurance companies, well, they rule healthcare, and hospital systems are just running eagerly behind them, trying to pick up the payment scraps left behind. Doctors don't even play golf anymore. They're mostly bewildered by ICD-10 and trying to pick from a new and seemingly ever-changing array of CPT codes. Hondas and Toyotas fill the physician's parking lot, if there even is one, and lunch is at your desk, if you're lucky. Sure, there are exceptions, but for the most part, physicians are struggling just to keep their feet on the bottom rung where they used to live at the top. An interesting little aside, I tracked physician incomes between 1990 and 2010 using internal medicine as my benchmark, or you might say the canary in the coal mine, income barometer. During that 20-year period, internal medicine physicians showed about literally a 1% annual increase in their incomes. I also checked insurance and hospital executives' incomes during that same period, and they showed an 8 to 12% increase on average. Another interesting tidbit, using that 1990 to 2010 timeline, in tracking hospital executive incomes, those in the VP level tended to make about as much as a successful internist would make, whereas a system CEO would probably be two to three times that. 
If we skip forward then to 2010, it's not unusual to see a health system CEO literally making 10 times what the IM income of that time frame was. If you want to check some of these numbers out for yourself, there is an organization called GuideStar, and their website is guidestar.org, and they publish the IRS 990 forms for many nonprofit organizations. There's a good chance your hospital or your health system will be listed there, and you can find out what the highest paid executives in that organization make, and you can see how your income stacks up. But income and control are only two things that physicians have lost over the last couple of decades. We've gone from an environment where any doctor can have your job any day to an environment where any staff member can have you removed from the medical staff doctor any day. All they need to do is say you are intimidating, unfriendly, threatening, brusque, or perhaps overly friendly, suggestive. Pick your word and it can be used against you. What happens next? Well, you may be forced into counseling. You may see restrictions on your practice. You may even be terminated. And those actions, many of them become a part of your permanent record to follow you for the rest of your career. What's the answer? Well, the answer is that ship has sailed. I often recount a somewhat composite example of events in the early 80s when insurance companies called physicians in light of the expectation of prospective payment moving into the physician realm. They wanted to sit down and talk to the physicians about working together and coming up with something that was mutually agreeable. Typically, those physicians eagerly agreed, offering to meet for dinner that evening or an early breakfast, and if you're a physician, you know early means very early in the morning. It seemed a bit of a hassle to those insurance execs, so literally, they called me. And I said, of course I'd like to meet. You want to go for the lunch, or how about playing golf tomorrow? Well, believe me, lunch and golf won out over late-night dinners and early morning breakfasts. Add to that, most physicians were independent. They were small, in small groups or solo, and that meant hundreds of breakfasts and dinners in order to have enough meetings to actually create a critical mass. With the hospital, it was one person. Sit down with me for a while. We'll figure out the nuts and bolts of what needs to be done, and we can close a deal. Will this change? Yes, simply because everything constantly changes. Will it change for the better? Well, I don't think so. That's not going to happen. What we're experiencing today is an ongoing feeding frenzy in practice acquisition and consolidation. Consolidation literally at every level of health care. From the standpoint of medical practice, we had the same thing in the late 80s and early 90s. But by the late 90s and early 2000s, that frenzy was to sell off as opposed to acquire practices. I know. I was there. But today, there are another set of factors in play. Physician expectations are, gener- are changing. Generationally, I'm seeing 35 to 42-year-olds as a group mostly comfortable with employment models. The 42 to 55-year-olds, well, they're suffering, suffering some considerable angst. You might call them the physician sandwich generation, pulled between employment and independence. And then there's the 55-plus physicians who mostly just want to get out of practice. The stock market plunges of the past decade have taken away many comfortable retirements. And what's booming right today has not been able to make up for those losses. So those physicians are either struggling to restart careers or jobs outside of 
medical practice, we're tightening our belts and wade through the practice muck for another 10 years with the hope of a later and perhaps better retirement. Practice can change, but it will be changed from the top down, and physicians today are not usually sitting in the top organizational seats. That's what needs to change. Non-clinical career opportunities, whether in provider-type organizations or not, truly abound. Physicians represent a great untapped intellectual resource with applicability to all areas of healthcare, healthcare-related fields. Think, for example, healthcare architecture and completely unrelated industries. If you've read material from my blog or content of my website or listened to previous podcasts, you know I define physicians as the great problem solvers. So any field where a physician has interest, passion, skill, and knowledge, coupled with a desire to solve the problems of that industry, it's a good fit. The time is now to redefine yourself before someone else, someone with far less knowledge and education than you have, with very different objectives, decides your future for you. So what are the steps you have to take to be able to move forward, to be able to really control your own career and your own future? Let's talk about those steps and how you can affect them in a timely and meaningful manner that you can wrap around the demands of your medical practice and clinical responsibilities. So once you decide that it is time to start reshaping your career, what's the first step to get started? Well, it's a good question. Let me say this. Your first step is not to start applying to jobs online. That goes to what I consider a constant challenge with clients, the question of what's out there. And as I respond to that question almost daily, the the real question is not what's out there. The real question is what do you want to do? And when I pose that question to most of my potential clients, the answer is this. Yes, dead air. I often say that practicing medicine is a rather cloistered type of experience. Exposure to other job avenues, other job opportunities, it's pretty limited. Discussion about other jobs, whether it's in your office, the operating room, the physician's lounge, those things just don't happen. So the real question is what do you want to do? And to derive an answer to that, think of yourself as a patient. Think of yourself as your own patient. When a patient arrives, you begin your diagnostic process. And your diagnostic process is a function of listening to the patient's symptoms, asking them questions about those symptoms in order for you to discern What are the underlying drivers here that are important in terms of a diagnosis? It's exactly the same with you and your career diagnosis. Your career diagnosis is predicated on your symptoms. Your symptoms, not in terms of what's wrong with you, but your symptoms in terms of what is it that you do well? What are those things that you enjoy? What is your knowledge? And to categorize it in the same manner that I do with a new client, what are your skills, what is your knowledge, and what are your interests or passions? Your answers to those questions, or perhaps more categorically, your answers to those questions in terms of a range of responses, sets the foundation 
for you to diagnose yourself. Diagnosing yourself in the context of what interests do you have that are supported by a set, a set of skills that are further supported with underpinnings of knowledge. And as you perform this exercise, I'll encourage you to look at those categories and the way you populate those columns on a page. And I do recommend literally creating three columns on a page, one titled interests, one titled skills, one titled knowledge. The way you populate those, I'll encourage you to look at the most basic elemental level of the things you write. My expectation with most clients is that conversation will begin somewhat broadly. Someone may say, uh, I have a skill in education. What kinds of education? Educating about what, in what context, in what environment? Being able to distill this down to its most basic elements is what allows you to then translate that into how it supports an actual different career path. And the same is true when you look at your knowledge. Of course you know about medicine, but what aspects of medicine and categorically, how do you know about medicine? Beyond that, you know about a lot of things. You know about many other things that you encounter. Knowledge is not just a function of degrees or what you have read and learned in a classroom. Knowledge is a function of what you have acquired throughout your life and your career. Then move to your interests. What interests you? What do you read about? What do you watch in the news? What catches your attention in world events or things that are happening around you? Interests are not just a function of what job do you want to do. Interests actually become the most important driver and determinant in what your next career step should be. But again, with interests, as with the other two categories, distill that interest down to its core, most basic elements. For example, I have clients say that they're interested in the environment. What exact elements of the environment? Are you interested in air quality, in water quality? Are you interested in the effects of mineral extraction? What are those drivers? What are those things about the environment that pique your interest? And beyond that interest, then, how do you see that interest in the context of a problem? Are you concerned about the quality of water and therefore you want to address water quality from some problem-solving perspective? Likewise with any other interest, any other aspect of any other interest as well. But you can see what's happening here. You're changing your perspective. You're not thinking or talking in broad generalities. You're becoming very, very specific. And that's what's necessary with a career. Just like medical practice, you have to specialize. Then, once you've populated your columns of interests and skills and knowledge, you connect them. You look for linkages where a skill supports an interest with the underpinnings of the necessary knowledge. And when you do that, what you're going to find is that a group of skills may support several interests, and likewise with knowledge. The lines are going to get uh, somewhat confusing and crossed, but nevertheless, they are going to start leading to a way of defining your skill set 
in a problem-solving context that is supported by a strong base of knowledge. Stop and think about what I just said. You're interested in doing something for which you have a broad base of skills and for which you have a, a demonstrated or documented base of knowledge that supports your ability to say, I can do this. You have defined your job or jobs, and you've defined it in a way that is outcomes-based, you might say. In other words, you've defined your job not as being the vice president of something. You've defined your job as a person who is solving a problem. And there are problems everywhere, and they all want to be solved. So once you can define yourself in the context of being a problem solver for a specific business or industry, you've taken a major step in defining your next career path. With this new level of focus, your next step is to be able to do some rebranding. In other words, today your CV represents your brand. Tomorrow, when you're looking at a non-clinical career, you're going to need a, a different basis for how you define yourself, how you talk about yourself, and what you present to individuals either directly or as a leave-behind following networking conversations. In pursuing a non-clinical career, you may find various resources and materials of value. I've constructed websites for clients, developed demo discs for those interested in the media, and certainly resumes, letters, and different types of marketing materials. However, I've found that three key elements or types of materials are absolutely necessary, regardless of the type of job you're interested in, and regardless of whether you're interested in a job, per se, or pursuing an entrepreneurial endeavor. Those three things are your resume, a stump speech, and a business card. That's what we'll talk about next. And we'll begin with your resume. To that point, if you've not yet listened to my podcast titled The Resume Recruiters Love to Hate, I'll encourage you to do so. Regardless, to that point, your objective is to create a document that presents you in the context of being that problem solver that can address the issues that are important to the type of job that you're interested in. Take a step back and look at your CV. How does it represent you? Well, probably represents you as a practicing physician. So if you're not applying for a job to be a practicing physician, your CV is the wrong document. There are a few scenarios where a CV is a good, I'll say, secondary or adjunct document, often in the pharma industry or insurance where they're accustomed to looking at CVs. You can use it as a supplement to the functional resume. Regardless, I still recommend a functional resume as a primary document because it is designed to cast you from a marketing perspective in the context of this job that you're wanting. For most other industries, I simply suggest setting your CV aside. Before getting into the specifics of a functional resume, I want to preface that my expectation is you're a practicing physician leaving clinical practice not already a physician executive. In structuring your functional resume, think of it as two pages. Page one is an overview that tells a potential employer everything that you really want them to know about you. It's going to state that you're a physician. It's going to have a synopsis of your 
background that is relevant to the job you're interested in. And then it's going to list accomplishments categorized in three groupings that will clearly show that you have the problem-solving capabilities and the perspective to be able to satisfy the requirements of the type of job or employment that you want. And I want to make a significant point of order here. Your resume does not change for different jobs. When I speak of the job you want, I'm presuming that we have a clear career path you want to follow. And this represents you in that general career path. The operative phrase, it represents you regardless. Don't try changing your resume for every job. It's a frustrating and ineffective strategy. Page two, then, is a chronology of relevant employment, your education, and space permitting, perhaps memberships, honors, awards, things of that nature. But it's two pages. Stop there. That may be very difficult to do. I appreciate that you're accustomed to a CV presentation that covers everything. A resume does not cover everything. It is a synopsis. It is an abbreviation. And you really want to be clear about that because you don't want to convey to anyone that your entire life story has been compressed to nothing more than two pages. The next document or material that's necessary for your career transition is your stump speech. Now, a stump speech is a very brief statement that really frames a conversation. It frames a conversation whether you're literally in an interview setting or whether you're networking. And it frames it around these categories, who you are, what you've done, what you want to do, and how you'll help that business or that industry you're interested in. Furthermore, there's a final, I call it kind of an add-on to a stump speech. It is why I'm leaving clinical practice. And I'm going to talk about why you're leaving clinical practice first. Now, you may wonder, how can I decide or tell you why or how you're leaving clinical practice? Well, I've been doing this for quite a few years, and what I've found is that certain statements or perspectives resonate with people outside of medicine. When it comes to why you're leaving clinical practice, here's your answer. Because medicine is treating one person at a time, and I'm looking for opportunities where I can impact or affect the lives of a great many people through my work and my accomplishments. Back to the rest of your stump speech. I actually have a physician non-clinical career IQ test on my website that is free of charge for physicians to take, and one of the questions on that IQ test is how long should your stump speech be? It's interesting that I have people who say it should be five minutes or ten minutes or however long it takes. Well, no. Here's the answer. Your stump speech should be 30 to 45 seconds. That's right. Seconds. 30 to 45 seconds is a little more than 90 words. And in 90 words, you need to be able to sum and frame the conversation that you want to have with someone. The purpose of your stump speech is to set boundaries and focus on the conversation that you're wanting to have. Again, whether that conversation is the initial question in almost every job interview called tell me a little bit about yourself, or if it's meeting someone in a networking environment or session, you want to be able to establish the parameters and your focus very, very quickly. 
This is also where having your resume completed prior to the stump speech becomes an asset because those elements of what you want to do and how you can help that industry will be pretty clearly spelled out on the first page of your resume. Again, you're going to summarize it even from your resume to be able to present it very concisely, very cogently. It will certainly take practice to reach that level of precision on that timeline, but you can certainly do it. And as you become more and more acclimated to presenting yourself in that capacity, one, it will be very easy. Two, you will be amazed how often you use it. The last item you need that is essential to your transition is a good business card. And when I say a good business card, good in two ways. First, it's good quality. You want a very good quality business card. And what determines quality in a business card is paper, layout, and printing. Don't skimp in those areas. The other element that defines quality in your business card is what it conveys. And again, this is where order of play is important. With your resume in place, and if you'll recall, I noted that you're going to categorize your accomplishments into three areas. Well, on your business card, I want your contact information, your name, and then bullet points of those three areas of critical career focus. I call them core competencies. By having those listed on your business card, you've created the perfect leave behind for every conversation to instill in the people you speak with that this is your focus. These are the three things that you want to be known for. And there are three things that you can substantiate with your accomplishments and you can substantiate through your stump speech and through almost any conversation about your skills and your abilities. With those three elements in place, now you're ready to start your networking and to really start putting in into play your efforts and all of your knowledge and your experience, refocusing them toward that new career path that you want to follow. And remember, the great likelihood is that your next career is going to come about through networking. I would estimate that 80 to 90% of the time, networking will be your most successful path. Only 10 or perhaps 20% of the time will actually applying for jobs. In other words, sitting there at your computer and filling out online forms with your material. Only about 10 or maybe 20% of the time, if you're really lucky, will that bear fruit. So put your focus on creating your career diagnosis developing your branding materials, and then effecting a successful and hopefully aggressive networking approach that allows you to sit in the same room with those people you want to be working with and wanting to be for. And I promise you, they'll be interested in the things you have to say and the approach that you as a physician bring to the table that's probably very different from how they're doing business today. So there you have it. The world of healthcare and medical practice really has changed over the last several decades. If you're not satisfied with where your career is going today, I don't believe you're going to find that it improves in the future. So making a change now may certainly be in your best interest. And getting started is really easier than you think. 
I hope this conversation has shown you that and given you those initial tips that you need to get started on the right foot. I'm always happy to entertain comments and questions. You can reach out to me at 720-339-3585 for both voice and text, or you can email me at rfp at thirdevo.com. That's T-H-I-R-D-E-V-O dot com. For now, this is Robert Pretty at Third Evolution. Thanks very much for listening.